0: Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over thirty years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only a total wine and more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly B21.
1: There are a million reasons to be unhappy all the time for all of us. I mean the world is in terrible shape. The future looks grim there, you know, one in eight children in America goes to bed hungry. I mean, if you, if you want to be miserable, it's not hard. But balancing that, there are all kinds of things, little things, that can give you great pleasure in life. and. Um, you know, different people like different things. I truly like everything that can happen in a kitchen.
0: This is burnt toast from Food 52, a podcast about what doesn't necessarily make it on the website. It's about even the quick
1: recipe slowing down enough to really stand for a minute over the stove when those onions are caramelizing in butter and just smelling it and just saying, "Oh god, this is a really wonderful. This is one of the grace moments of the day.
0: I'm Kenzie Wilbur, this week with a newly minted cold. Thanks for being with us.
1: The secret to life, and it's what I learned, is to find joy in ordinary things.
0: The first email went out on May 21st. Ruth Reichel is coming for dinner. What do you cook for someone who has worked as the restaurant critic of both the L.A. and New York Times, who has sat at the helm of the iconic gourmet magazine, who has edited cookbooks and written memoirs, and has won six James Beards for her work? There was a big black pan with,
1: what, two dozen eggs in it, three dozen eggs, (laughs) ready to be baked. These beautiful, big, fat slabs of bacon. You
0: decide to make her breakfast for dinner, because her latest book, My Kitchen Year, is chock full of baked eggs and matzo and bacon. And you hope she doesn't find your plan too cute. And you hope you make her recipes the way she likes them. So, can I ask you, mm-hmm. is, this, is
1: this the texture you make your matzo brai? So you're putting sugar on?
0: <laughs> oh, even worse! <laughs>
1: I also smelled baking peach cobblers which smelled wonderful. Cheers. Thank you for having me.
0: Cheers. 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 Ruth's cookbook is all about comfort and slowing down and taking your time in the kitchen and how she relearned the value of all these things in the year after Condé Nast closed Gourmet magazine while she was editor-in-chief after 68 years in production. You can guess how she feels about the recipes she cooked that year without even cracking the cover. Your subtitle reads, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. Did they really save your life?
1: They really did save my life. Um, You know, when Gourmet closed, if I had not been able to start cooking, I really don't know what I would have done with myself. Um, I was in such a bad place. I, I really felt as if, you know, I should have seen it coming. I should have done something to save my staff. We had we were a really close-knit group of people. And so it wasn't just losing the magazine, losing my job. It was also, in some sense, losing a real family. And, you know, there were people on the staff who had worked at Gourmet for 35 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we were all um, sort of really shocked. And, you know, I was in charge. So, um, and I really did feel like, I don't know if I'll ever get another job. And I had been working since I was 16. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the first time in more than 40 years that I didn't have a job. And um, I uh, I just felt lost. Mm-hmm. And I did what I always do when I'm frightened and depressed, is I threw myself into cooking. And for me, cooking isn't just being in the kitchen. It's also the shopping. I mean, it's a big part for me, that pleasure of going to a butcher shop, a bakery, a cheese store, and having that connection with the people there. And I realized I hadn't been able to do that for a really long time. I mean, I had cooked for my family, but, you know, that thing, that moment where you look at your watch, and it's 7.15, and you're still in the office, and you go, I've i got to get dinner on the table as quickly as possible. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's a really important point. I mean, you talk about getting back in the kitchen and going back to cooking, but what was your cooking life like while you were at the helm of gourmet? It, I mean,
1: I did I did cook for my family, but it was really, you know, fast things. Um, you know, often it was a lot of, like, cooking cook ahead over the weekend, but again, you have so little time that, um, you know, as you know, working today is like it's seven days a week and things that I could just get out quickly. So the pleasure of just collecting ingredients, having time to hang out with people in the shops, you know, to stand in the supermarket and say to someone, what are you going to do with that? Um, And then to go home And we connect with the idea of cooking not as a results-oriented process, but as a process and enjoying the journey as much as the result. And I realized I'd really lost that. And um, No matter what happens in my life, I will never let that go again, ever. I, you know, th- that moment of just taking the time to savor the sensory pleasures in the kitchen, um, the idea that I had deprived myself of that for such a long time, now it just seems crazy to me, really crazy.
0: I think that's one of the great paradoxes of working in food media and being a food editor is that we could spend six hours of our day re- trying to convince our readers why they should make this four-hour recipe or do this really complicated thing. And when we get home, finally, at 8 or 9 p.m., we're looking for what we can feed ourselves in five minutes with.
1: It, it is one of the real ironies. But, you know, I mean, let me say that it's not even about making the four-hour recipe. It's about even the quick recipe, slowing down enough to really stand for a minute over the stove when those onions are caramelizing in butter and just smelling it and just saying, oh, God, this is a really wonderful scent. This is one of the grace moments of the day.
0: And the recipes in My Kitchen Year are written with an eye for those grace moments. They're looser and more narrative than what we normally see, less formulaic. I
1: really wanted this to feel like you're with me in the kitchen that um, I'm cooking along with you and I really wanted to point out the places you know stop here Um, smell this what are they cooking over there it smells great I smell something it it smells eggy and sugary it's it's sweet it seems to me that most recipes are marching orders they're prescriptions they're Boom, 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 boom. And I really think that a recipe should be a collaboration between the recipe writer and the reader and that I really wanted to give you permission to deviate. I mean, I wanted to say, you know, put some olive oil. You know, you know, it's your choice how much olive oil you want to use. Mm-hmm. A splash of this, a dab of that – So that you really are thinking about how do I want this to taste? How is this this recipe going to be mine? And again, I mean, I really – I'm very intent on trying to get people to think of cooking as an adventure rather than as a job. And that is part of what this style is about. It's 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 meant to make you slow down a little, do things as much as possible with your fingers. I mean I I, you know, could make pie dough in a cuisine art, but I really I mean I have one of those old fashioned cutters, you know, those wire cutters. And I love that process of feeling the way the the shortening becomes one with the flour. That's a
0: cooking tool that'll never never be improved upon. The cooking tool that they used to cut butter into flour in the 1800s is still the best thing that there is. It is. Short of your hands.
1: It, yeah, and you can you can use your hands, but your hands are a little warm, so you
0: don't want to really do that. But sometimes maybe she would. You know, I mean, I mix pie dough by hand just cuz I like the feel of it. But this switching of pie dough methods, the seeming inconsistency. In a way, it's the ethos of the book. The beauty of cooking lives in its imperfection, and you can only get there when you play. Do you think, though, that we've gotten a little bit too far away from that sort of simplicity in recipe writing? Well, you know, recipe writing
1: is very much a reflection of culture and of its time. And if you follow—I mean, even if you look at Gourmet magazine and the way that Gourmet did recipes in the 40s, those recipes were basically— it was a men's magazine when it first started. And it was they gave those recipes to their cooks. And the cooks knew how to cook. So, you know, a recipe for duck à l'orange would begin roast one duck. By the year 2000, we were taking two pages to tell you how to roast a duck. I mean, we would start by saying how to buy the duck, you know, and which kind of duck to what buy. What to look for, what the to, questions to ask. Right. And we now have probably the most food-savvy generation. I mean, young people today, you know, millennials and Gen Zers are people who have grown up watching food TV. They're knowing how to cook again, and and they're not going to need all that information. So I think you're going to start seeing recipe writing change. I mean, I think the first time I was really aware of it was when I first saw Julia Child's cookbooks. And her books are... They are so step by step. And I remember, you know, when I first looked at them, thinking, oh, just give me the ingredients. I mean, I can't cook from that.
0: It makes it feel a little like scaling a mountain.
1: It does. Yeah. It does. And they get very long, and there's no room for deviation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I would hope that my recipes give you all the room in the world. Deviation.
0: I think it's a really a beautiful thing, making room for deviation and encouraging cooks to play in the kitchen. But it is, it, it bears saying that you know, if someone says sear that steak or put the olive oil in the pan, we know how to sear a steak or roast a chicken or, you know, trust something without being told how. And if the if the mission is to empower everybody to cook, everybody should be cooking. We both, I think, agree. Right. Yes, that.
1: absolutely. Um,
0: I worry about that. And I wonder if that's why you also had those full written out versions of your recipes done just in case, because the publisher might have that worry too. Right. You know, look, I mean, you can always, you
1: know, do everything, make everything fail safe. And that's another thing I really hope that the message of this book is, which is I feel like we have gotten people to the point where they're afraid to make a mistake. And the truth is, the best cook in the world is going to make a bad meal every once in a while. It just happens.
0: We cling to this logic tightly as we serve her that matzo brie. I
1: think it's delicious, but it doesn't taste like matzo brie to make. I mean, it, it tastes like something completely different. It's like matzo pudding. The idea that you would make the same five dishes over and over again because they're the few that you've perfected makes me crazy. You know, I think, you know, so what? if you make a bad meal.
0: There's another one in a few hours. Sure. Do you remember the last mistake you made in the kitchen?
1: Oh, God, I make them all the time. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the last probably big mistake, you know, Kim Saverson came to do a New York Times piece, and I made a recipe I've probably made a thousand times, which I really love for cochinita pibil, and you wrap the pork in, you know, you make this sort of wonderful paste that you marinate the pork in overnight, and then you wrap it in banana leaves, and you cook it really slowly. And I did. I mean, I cooked it for hours and hours and hours. It was a pig from a farmer, but from a a farmer I don't usually use. I hadn't cooked one of his before, and it needed to cook long. I mean, I cooked it for four hours, and it really needed to have cooked for six. And it wasn't that it wasn't good, but it, it wasn't that kind of like falling apart, mm-hmm. you know, creamy meat that it usually is. And I could see her looking at me and thinking, why does she think this recipe is so great? And I was just thinking, Yeah, why didn't I get my you know, why didn't I go to my usual farmer?
0: Did you talk about it then?
1: I didn't. I didn't no. even I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, maybe she didn't even notice that it wasn't mm-hmm. as wonderful as mm-hmm. it should have been.
0: So the book is full of recipes that comforted you in that post-gourmet year when you, you know, turned back to cooking really full force. Did putting a bunch of recipes into a book that comforted you do something to – do they still comfort you in that way? I'm sure that you've tested them a billion times now. You've written them out. Do you feel the same way about them now as you did when you were putting them in the book?
1: Yeah, these are recipes I really like. This is kind of an accidental book. I didn't set out, oh, gourmet is over and now I'm going to write a cookbook. It didn't happen that way at all. My real thought was gourmet is over. I've always wanted to write a novel. I should try. And I started writing short stories and I was not in a great place emotionally. And, and in
0: fact, you published a novel before this book.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like I've always wanted to, to write fiction. And I was, you know, more than halfway through the year. Before I had this conversation with a friend, and you know, he he said to me, "Do you miss restaurants?" And how long has it been since you've had an expense account? And I thought <laughs> about it and realized you know, I had had an expense account since 1978. I'd been able to go to any restaurant I wanted, anywhere mm-hmm. on somebody else's money, and that in this time since gourmet, I had not been able to do that. And he said, "God, you must really miss going to restaurants." And I looked at him and said, no, I'm just, I've been so happy in the kitchen. And he said, you know, you're always talking about how you want to get people cooking again. Maybe you should think about writing a cookbook. And it was really like a light went off. Oh, maybe I should write a cookbook. But if I had set out to write a cookbook, I would have thought – well, okay, you need to have it needs to be balanced, and there' need to be so many vegetable dishes and so many fish dishes and so many meats and mm-hmm. and this was really just I had the notes that I'd been you know as I wrote a as I did a recipe, I would write down how it worked, and then I would do it again and you know add more something um, so I had my notes from the kitchen I had the tweets because I had been tweeting every day, so i mean the the cookbook sort of happened very naturally.
0: You write about everything so poetically. I think you even talked about doing the dishes as creating order out of chaos.
1: In fact, I like anything you can do in a kitchen. I even like doing dishes. I mean, <laughs> there's something so enjoyable. I mean, you walk into a kitchen after a dinner party and it's a mess. <laughs> and you know that in an hour it's all going to be neat. And it's so, it's, it's so much fun to sort of create Order out of chaos, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. such a it's like, you know, such a feeling of power.
0: Yeah. But I'm curious if there's anything that you that you don't feel poetic about. For me,
1: one of the lessons that I learned in my kitchen year was that we spend so much time waiting for the wonderful. You know, we're always waiting for some wonderful big moment. And you know, at, at Conde Nast, I lived a very big life. I mean, if you're a if you're an editor there, I mean, you, you, you're treated like a princess. And I really feel that the secret to life, and it's what I learned, is to find joy in ordinary things. And so I don't think of it as poetry. I mean, I think of it as just paying attention to the things that can make you happy. Because there are a million reasons to be unhappy all the time for all of us. I mean, the world is in terrible shape. The future looks grim. There you know, one in eight children in America goes to bed hungry. I mean, if you, if you want to be miserable, it's not hard. But balancing that, there are all kinds of things, little things, that can give you great pleasure in life. And, you know, different people like different things. I truly like everything that can happen in a kitchen. You know, as contrast, I'm not a gardener. For me, when I have had a garden, it's like everything out there is going, feed me, take care of me, weed me. (laughs) And it's like this obligation. Nothing in a kitchen, including doing the dishes, feels that way to me. So it's an easy thing to take pleasure in. Even the ridiculous tasks, cleaning your copper pots, you
0: know. But. Oh, see that to me is like a treasure hunt. It doesn't look anything like it will at the end, and that I, I can get into that. I yeah. would write a poem about that. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so why Twitter? There are a lot of tweets in your book, and that's sort of how you went back and and uncovered some of the things that you were feeling in that in that post gourmet year.
1: Twitter again came to me accidentally. I, I had never heard of Twitter. I had a bunch of people over for dinner one night, and they all started talking about Twitter. I mean, this is years ago. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, we're going to sign you up for Twitter. So they did. And, and I, I Gourmet, I was really busy. I mean, I, I was just, you know, all the time. I, you know, I didn't have time to talk to my, you know, talk on the phone to my friends. And I thought of Twitter as a way that I would Just keep in touch with them. And so I thought, all right, every day I will take one moment and just try and make a little word picture of my day so people know where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking.
0: Will you write a word picture with me about the studio session?
1: I think we start with black, (laughs) which is canelé black. This room is very black. We're both wearing all black. We're both wearing all black. You have black glasses. (laughs) The microphone is black. And so I think we start with dark, dark room, dark food, dark thoughts coming into the light, happy.
0: It quickly moved beyond just word pictures.
1: I feel like not just writing, but having Twitter in that year, having that social media. I mean, we were alone in a house that was without electricity for a good part of that winter because it was such a bad winter and we didn't have a backup generator at that point. We do now. So we would lose electricity. We would be snowed in on top of a mountain, not able to go anywhere for, you know, four or five days at a time with no electricity in the house, feeling very alone. And the only thing that I had was my iPhone. And so I could connect to the world on Twitter. And... It was amazing. It it was, I mean, I did not feel alone. And I, I really felt like I had a community of friends out there that connected me to the world. And, I mean, you know what it's like in a test kitchen here. I mean, where you're cooking with people and you're talking and you're critiquing each other's dishes. And Twitter worked that way for me in that year where I would cook something and say... You know, for instance, with the bread, I had just made Jim Leahy's bread, the dough, and the power went out. And I didn't know if I was going to have an oven, when I was going to have an oven to bake it in. And I tweeted, what should I do? Because I was just saying, okay, it's it's gone. I might as well just throw it out. And all these people tweeted back at me, no, keep punching it down. See what happens then. And people would ask me, how's the dough? And I, I say, <laughs> you know. It's, it's smelling really great, you know, it's like it started attracting the wild yeasts in the air and it started getting better and better and the minute the electricity went on, I turned on the oven and, you know, cranked it up to 500 and got that pot in there and heated it up and made the bread and people were saying, you know, how's the bread, how's the bread and it was like being in a test kitchen in some ways, you know, having those exchanges for me, you know, what social media has done is things that used to be very lonely pursuits don't have to be anymore. I used to be alone in my kitchen. I'm never alone in my kitchen anymore.
0: Even when you are. Even when I am. Was it difficult to read through some of them?
1: It was, and it was difficult to pick. I mean, I obviously didn't use all my tweets. I mean, I but it was really great because it it, it was like a diary.
0: Ruth says writing this book was easy, unlike much of her other work, partly because pieces of the storyline already existed in the world of social media, but also because the story really shaped itself. I didn't try to be artful
1: in this book. I mean, my agent and I called this the little book. I mean, we never thought of this as it turned into something that's very different than what I started with. And so it was just, you know, I, I knew that I wanted it to be a story that you know this was was going to be a cookbook with a through line and i knew what that story was was coming out of this and you know what i wanted to i mean i knew exactly what i wanted to say i wasn't trying to to make it more than it was and so it just sort of came i haven't had that experience before mm-hmm. i hope i'll have it again but writing this was just
0: not hard It also could have been the years of her family dinners, which at times could be a little like pitch meetings in disguise.
1: In my family, I mean, my parents, you know, my mother was a horrible cook, but we had long dinners, you know. My parents, we sat down to dinner, my mother, we lit candles, and we would sit at the table for usually a couple of hours, and my parents would drink wine. And everybody was expected to come to the table with a story about something that had happened to you that day. And I feel like I learned to write being at the table that way. Because, you know, first of all, you learn to go through, like, what's the interesting story? You know, well, everything that happened to me today. And then what's the lead? How how do I, you know, how do I present this? And I, I really feel like that is how I sort of learned the interior process of writing and storytelling.
0: Would your family have been satisfied with the lead?
1: Oh, I, th- I think my family would have been very satisfied with this lead. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, in some ways, um, you know, your parents oddly stay with you for your entire life. Mm-hmm. And I think both my parents – I mean, you know, my parents didn't care about food. I mean, they were intellectuals who thought, you know, until the end of their lives, you know, when are you going to do something serious with your life? And I think that this book would finally have explained me to them and that they would have understood at last why I think food is so important.
0: So you didn't eat to—your family didn't sort of instill in you that cooking for comfort tradition that you have so heavily rooted now?
1: Oh, my God, no. I mean, you know— my mother, as I have, you know, written, um, was truly the world's worst cook, had an iron stomach, really thought that, you know, the notion of spoilage was ridiculous, food didn't spoil, and, you know, a little mold would never hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. And
0: Makes you stronger.
1: Makes you stronger. I mean, she never threw anything out. She repurposed, you know, her favorite dish was everything stew, which was literally just taking everything (laughs) in the refrigerator, dumping it into a, a, you know, Le Creuset pot, stirring it up and sticking it in the oven and saying, oh, it'll be delicious. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. So, you know, cooking for her was absolutely not. and, And she really, you know, also was of that time when she was really proud of, Being able to get dinner on the table in 10 minutes, which meant using instant rice and canned peas. And and so the idea of cooking for pleasure, cooking for comfort, is something I discovered very much for myself.
0: There's a part early on in your book when you are cleaning out your desk and your office, and you describe dreading a radio interview because you you knew that they were going to ask you about the demise of gourmet and what that was like and in 6 years later you're writing a book about it. I mean, has anybody ever really stopped asking you that question?
1: No, and you know, the problem is I don't know why. So it's a question I can't answer, but it's a question everybody is endlessly curious about as am I. Why did they close this magazine that was so beloved? Mm-hmm. And you know, if they didn't like the direction it was going, and why didn't they just fire us all and bring in a new crew and keep the magazine mm-hmm. God, I mean, I, I have no answers to any of that.
0: Back when it happened, I was uh, I had this really embarrassing little food blog, and I, and I looked at it last night in in preparation for this because I remember writing something about it. I remember writing about how it was a dream to be a gourmet contributor, and it was totally melodramatic and ridiculous, <laughs> but it definitely it hit everybody. Melodramatic is an understatement. Dated october fourteenth two thousand nine, from a blog post which should have never seen the light of day, I write: "I'm finally ready to talk about it. It's been a week of pure denial around here, a full on textbook display of grief's notorious first stage, but I feel it's probably best for my mental health that I face this thing head on. Gourmet is gone, after sixty eight years. Sixty period eight period when the magazine closed i was on
1: book tour for the the second gourmet cookbook the gourmet today which was truly one of the weirder experiences of my life cuz it was not my book i wasn't making any money from it and the magazine had closed and all anybody i saw wanted to talk about was how much they loved the magazine so every every bookstore appearance was like a revival meeting with people standing up and testifying, often with tears running down their cheeks, about how much they loved the magazine.
0: It's clear that had I had the chance, I would have been in those revival meetings, standing on my chair, rallying with everyone else. Instead, we made Ruth breakfast for dinner, our testaments that night, only that matzo can be divisive, and that breakfast for dinner wasn't too cute a plan, if only because dinner guests get a steady stream of bacon to go along with every course. I'm saving some bacon to pair with my cobbler course. Mm. <laughs> Instead, we forced food on her, like any good host, and hoped that she meant it when she said she truly liked everything that could happen in the kitchen, including our cold leftover sweet matzo brai. So I'm actually gonna go home and cook dinner for my son.
1: <laughs> I'll take him bacon, he would love bacon. Yeah.
0: Bread, corn pudding, we have huge cobbler. Mm-hmm. And, like any good guest, she refused just once.
1: Not if I'm taking it out of somebody else's mouth, because otherwise I will stop. And
0: uh... Ruth's latest book, My Kitchen Year, came out last week. And that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Our producer is Tim Einenkell, and thanks also to Laura Mayer, Henry Malofsky, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter address is at food 52 and you can email us at editors at food52.com. If you like the show, tell everyone you know and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have any comments or questions about comfort food, we want to know about them. So tweet them and hashtag them with F5-2 podcast. For Ruth Reichel and our dinner party hosting editorial team, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.